From Unchien Andalou, it's the IGN Digigods. And now please bid au revoir les enfants to two umbrellas of Cherbourg, Wade Major, and Mark Kaiser. Oh, Corey, whose intro did you completely mutilate with your intentionally horrendous French? That was courtesy of Mario Mendez mocking me for never taking French class. <laughs> I want somebody to uh, I want somebody to Photoshop, okay, share you. no you. no share dressed as a Borg holding an umbrella because it would be the umbrellas of Cher Borg. I did that last week, didn't I? Wow. Did I, I, do the Colonel, it, I did the Colonel Clinton you know, thing last week. We'll have a clinic on how to do bad jokes. Uh, yes, and you can teach it, yeah. as it turns out. Yes, I can. I can do a very good job teaching it. Uh, so, Mark, I think last week I left you with an assignment. You were supposed to uh, uh, see a celebrity this week. I haven't seen anybody. See, you don't Just because I work at E does not mean I see celebrities. Really? No, really. They don't, they don't show up in the studio? Well, they do, but I'm not there when they do. Man. All right. Well, whatever. Nothing. Okay, so... Should we just talk about the big one or not? Should we just get yeah. right to the big one, Wade? Get right to the big one, Mark. Okay, well, Chairman of the Board co-stars uh, Carrot Top. <laughs> oh, that's not the big one? I was going to wear my Carrot Top World Tour t-shirt today. But Yo, I... you do wear that. You still... I've seen you in yeah. that t-shirt in 2014, as early... Yes. As, as late as 2014, Absolutely. I've seen you in that shirt. I love that t-shirt. <laughs> and the funny thing is, no one... I, I, I will wear that t-shirt in public. No one bats an eye. I would almost expect somebody to go, really? But they don't. Uh, Interstellar is uh, the Christopher Nolan film stars uh, Matthew McConaughey Anne Hathaway Jessica Chastain Michael Caine like you don't even know that and um, this is his uh, epic moderately riveting troublesome confusing a bit of a mess uh, epic and uh, I have mixed feelings about this movie I loved a lot of it I didn't understand a lot of it, and I think that uh, Nolan's reach might have exceeded his grasp just a little bit. I think what he needs is there's something about Nolan and his brother together that yeah. they almost bring, they, they, in terms of like convoluted plots and and being able to 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 convey these grand ideas. I feel like their hearts in the right place, but somehow they can't really convey these ideas cleanly in a way that that the audience can understand or if or be challenged by which is fine too right but i just feel like he's really he's too much of a he's not stanley kubrick he's too much of a he has too much of a pop sensibility yeah to really take no, you're right. all these ideas and make them into this cohesive beautiful whole like let's say 2001 there's there is there is something there's a certain he's he's trapped between sensibilities and i'm glad he's there because there's no one else out there who's making you know, serious mid-budget, in this case big budget, but serious mid-budget movies with big ideas. You know, we, I, I've said this a lot. I've said this on NPR a lot. Um, all we have now are big movies with no ideas or little movies with big ideas. There are no big movies with big ideas anymore because they don't think that anybody wants to pay money. They think it's a pure escapist cartoon format for the kids now. And if, you know, grown-ups want to go, well, they can go to, you know, some art house somewhere and, and sit and watch it with the, all the rest of the 60-year-olds. They kind of have written that off. And um, Nolan is the only guy who's making kind of big movies with big ideas. The problem is he has that other part of his personality. He doesn't have that Kubrick sensibility where he feels like, well, you know, if we get to the end and I leave all the threads, if, if, if all the questions of the universe are still unresolved, I'm okay with that. 
You know, I've given you a great journey. He feels this incredible, compelling need to to, to give every film closure, to tie up the loose threads, to give you the the M. Night Shyamalan zinger and whammy of 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 a twist at the end, to kind of give you some kind of narrative satisfaction. You did something brilliant years ago. I don't know if you remember this. Probably the last time I did something brilliant. No, this was ages ago uh, when we were both writing for Entertainment Today. Whoa! Yeah. And uh, I don't even remember the movie. Uh, Something tells me it had something to do with The Godfather, but it it clearly wasn't Godfather Part 2 because you you didn't know how to speak at that time. But, uh, or maybe you did, barely. But the... You wrote in in the review. You said that, that that it proved that audiences don't need to walk out happy to walk out happy. That's true. And I thought that was a really great way of summarizing that you know a movie doesn't have to be completely and totally narratively satisfying. It can be sort of spiritually satisfying. It's why we like horror films and tragedies and you know things that don't end the way we want them to end because they're fulfilling in a different way. And I don't know that Nolan has quite figured out how to be that person yet. There were a lot of opportunities in Interstellar to bring it in that direction. But yet he had to sort of tie everything up. And that's what, and it's when he starts trying to tie everything up that it goes off the rails. I, I think, too, is that I, I don't know that I even need everything tied up. What I need, ultimately, is something that he can't, at least in this film, he can't give me yet, which is characters that I care about. Yeah. Because I know the whole idea of the film is that McConaughey... McConaughey's character and the character played by his daughter, played by two actresses, one of them Jessica Chastain. You're supposed to care enough, like that little microcosm. The father-daughter dynamic. The father-daughter dynamic is supposed to broaden out into like how the whole universe is basically made of love. Yeah. And it's all about him returning to his daughter because he loves his daughter. And you care about that if you care about the father and you care about the daughter. Well, you don't care about either because he's a pilot and she goes away for 30 years and goes from age 11 to age uh, 35. Yeah. And think that the, it's, it's, difficult to, it's difficult to cultivate that relationship when the father and the daughter don't meet. True. Right? Yeah. They don't meet and I'm not going to tell you if they meet or when they meet. It, I'm just saying that I, generally I think, speaking, they don't meet. I think there's also way too much discussion about all of the – they're overly concerned as well to make sure that audiences understand all of the relativistic implications of what they're doing to save the earth, that they're going to go through a wormhole. And then the time changes and you age, you don't age, they age faster on earth. And if he comes back at all, he's going to come back and he's going to be younger than the, the, the person's older and things. That change. It's like, oh my gosh, you, you look, we all kind of sort of understand relativity. You don't need to give me these elaborate explanations for fear that I'll be confused when suddenly I realize that that you know uh, the the Doppler effect is taken. I, I don't well, that, need to know that's all that. whole Kip Thorne thing. I mean, Kip Thorne, who's who's this yeah. physicist? The guy gets a credit on the movie. Yeah, I don't you need know? I don't need that. You, don't, you, need you that. don't need to give me. You need to give me just enough for it to be believable, but you don't need to give me so much that I feel like I've taken a class in quantum physics and I understand every detail. I don't need that. So it's a it's a real mixed bag. I still recommend the movie. It's oh, worth I absolutely seeing. recommend it, 100%. It's worth seeing because it's such an impressive achievement, but it is deeply flawed and incredibly frustrating on a lot of levels. Um, but as long as you know that you're going you're gonna to watch it and go, boy, that was really well done, but I'm, I'm pissed off at the same time, you'll be satisfied and pissed off at the same time, and that's just the nature of Nolan. It's also really long, too. Like If, if, if you look at, like, if you see it in the theater, you were pretty enthralled, if a little bit bored towards maybe two-thirds of the way in. But if you're watching it on your 42-inch television screen at home, you'll be yeah. checking Facebook within 45 minutes, True. which is not to say that the movie's boring. No. I'm just saying that 
it's a type of movie where you need to be thoroughly, thoroughly engaged with it. And the moment you drop out by even a second, you can check Facebook. Yeah. You know, when I look at movies that try to do what this tries to do, which is instill a sense of awe in the audience, and that's hard to do nowadays. Yeah. Because everybody's seen everything, right? CGI can do whatever you want. Yeah. And in the end, you know, when I think of films that, that give me that sense of awe, I mean, I think of movies like Close Encounters, you mm-hmm. know, sure. which... Was no, which is you know that's 1977. That's before the really kind of before the CGI era. Yeah. Now somehow directors think that if they just go into a computer and show us a supernova, we'll be awed. Yeah, and it's that's not how it is. No, because the 12 year old down the street has all the same software and he can he can, he can, he can do the same thing. It's not it's true. You know, he's he's got his whole little YouTube channel. That twelve year old down the street, and you know, Supernova is is one of his shows but every I, week. A different Supernova. So even though even though it doesn't have it doesn't successfully cultivate that interpersonal dynamic yeah. between the father and son, even though it doesn't elicit the sense of awe that we, that he thinks he is, and I would this is not quite a character piece, obviously. And even though he spends a lot of time talking about science, some of which is interesting, some of which is too much. I, again, I'm glad, like you said, I'm glad he's around. I'm glad he's making movies. People should see his movies because the last thing you want is for Christopher Nolan to go away and then like Zack Snyder does all the big movies. No, no. That's we, all you no, want. That's, can't have that. You can't have that. Can't have that. So I would see by twice yes. Interstellar just on that basis because you want Christopher Nolan to keep working. By the way, uh, a little bit of interesting news here as long as we were talking about 2001. Oh, by the way, oh, can, can I say yeah. real, Extra, Extras too. Let him know about the extras. The, now, the... Um, the transfer is, is gorgeous, magnificent, beautiful, unbelievable. Yeah, it looks beautiful. I mean, the, was, the, the audio is is the audio stunning. is out of this world. It, I don't care I don't, if I don't if you have like the first rate, the top tier reference sound system. This thing will show you things in your sound system that you had no idea even existed. Looks gorgeous, and don't forget, uh, as you know, this is a whole different conversation. But Nolan shoots on film, so this was shot a lot, big portions on IMAX, on which IMAX. he's been doing for a long time too. So. It looks beautiful. It sounds unbelievable. The extras are fine. My my, my sense is that um, that there aren't really enough extras to be able to say, "Hey, this is the definitive version." I wonder if maybe if this does well enough, they'll come up with a special edition with some more extras. Because really, you know, when one of your extras is like shooting in Iceland, it's like okay. It's not mm-hmm. much. Yeah. So considering how big the film is and how successful it pretty much was, I expected more from the extras. So you remember that uh, the little the uh, lunar lander uh, space module that Haywood Floyd gets to the moon in in two thousand one. It's the round thing, yeah. right? You know, it's like where he's sitting there and his pen is floating, and then it, it it's just round, right? It's right. just round, has those feet, and then yeah. The the model used for that was the Academy recently purchased that for their library. Really? Did you know that? I did not know. It that. was sold at auction. Somebody had that. It was sold sold at a prop auction. What do you think that thing fetched? Uh, uh, one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Three hundred and forty-four thousand. Wow! Isn't that unbelievable? It's a unbelievable. piece of history. Three hundred forty-four thousand for a model. History. And sure. by the way, the thing, you know, when, when you think of two thousand one, you think of them of a movie where, on its surface. You can sit there and watch 2001 yep. and be satisfied <clears throat> just enjoying the tip of the mountain. Yeah. If you want to sit there for, for, for a year and, well, and, and, and write a thesis on I it, you can this, do that too. I read this recently. Terry Gilliam summed this up. He said, you know, films are afraid to just leave questions unanswered anymore. He, and he talks specifically about 2001 and how much he loves 2001. He says, that ending to 2001, I have no idea what any of that means. And I love it. 
<laughs> and I thought, there you go. That's it. I don't know what that means, but I, and I don't care. It's satisfying in in its mystery. It's satisfying in just the aesthetic. It doesn't need to be, you know, it doesn't need to make sense. Wait, if it's mysterious, All right. what is the 21-year-old kid going to do if it's mysterious? Play a video game instead and leave the movies to us. That's what I say. You know what, Mark? This is one of the most bizarre things of last year. I know everybody was like, Selma got robbed at the Oscars. Selma should have had nominations. Well, you know, Selma got a Best Picture nomination, and it clearly was in the mix. It was on everybody's... You know, short list. I mean, it won an academy. It won an award for song. It, it didn't get the awards it should have, but it, they kind of screwed up the ad campaign. They really did. The whole marketing of the thing wasn't well handled. Here's the one that mystifies me. Lionsgate knows how to play the marketing game, right? They've won a Best Picture. It's been a few years with Crash, but they're in the mix every year whenever they have a contender. Lionsgate sent us screeners. They didn't do like with Selma. They, Selma was. They didn't send screeners to press. They didn't send it to the guilds. Lionsgate always peppers everybody with screeners. And the first best picture of the season, National Board of Review, came out, best picture, a most violent year. And we thought, that, there, that, that one's on the short list. And that was the end of it. It got no other awards from any critics groups, no love from any, any guilds. I didn't get a screener it, of that, did you? Yeah. You got a screener of that? Yeah. I didn't. You didn't? No. Really? No. Well, then they blew it, I guess. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I got the screen, I just, and I thought, well, there we go. It's, it's on its way. And not a single Oscar nomination. Not one. And yet this is one of the best films of the year. Oh, it's great. J.C. Chandor, that Fantastic. guy. I, that, I don't know what that guy's drinking, but I want some. He's great. He's amazing. <sighs> this is like, He's knocked out of the park three straight times. Amazing. J.C. Chandor, of course, did uh, Margin Call and then did... Uh, the Robert Redford thing? The, uh, not Swept Away, but... Uh, the Robert Redford thing? The Robert Redford thing. And, uh, but no, this is, this is just fantastic. And what I love most about it is uh, he basically uh, has given Oscar Isaac a, a whole new... Like, Oscar Isaac kind of came on strong in Drive. That was the thing that sort of introduced him to everybody, right? Sure. And then the Coen Brothers thing. He did a good job in that, too. And, and Yeah, and, and Lewin Davis. Uh, but he, this is like, now he's like classic. This is like what Al Pacino would have done in the, in the 70s. This is like a Sidney Lumet film starring Al Pacino, except 40 years later. You know what? I, I think people might have been off-put by the fact that it seemed like something they had, they've seen before yeah. it seems too godfathery it's about an oil, it's about like a hot like an oil salesman how exciting is heating that oil. heating oil salesman yeah. how exciting well, is that the, the idea the idea here is that that really, really quickly for those who who don't know what it's about it takes place in the 70s and there is uh, there's kind of an almost underground war going on between heating oil people there's this extended cold this really long winter and Oscar Isaac has married a, a, basically a mobster's daughter played by Jessica Chastain who's great and he's taken over the family heating oil business, but he's trying to go straight with it. He doesn't want to play all the underworld shenanigans that usually get played. And so he's trying to consolidate. And one of the first scenes is that he's making a deal with these Hasidic Jews who are going to sell him um, you know, their, their plant, their, their facility, so that he can enlarge his business. And, of course, then there are these hijackings going on, people who are like, you know, at gunpoint hijacking the heating oil trucks and you're losing, you know, hundreds and thousands of gallons of the stuff. And it's, it's about that whole scenario, that whole fascinating world. And I know it doesn't sound very romantic or very, uh, very dangerous heating oil. And, wow, 1970s heating oil. But it, it's just everything about this. It's like a Sidney Lumet film. It, it just feels it has that intensity and that density. And it, everything about it just rings true. It's true. And, I'm you know, so sorry this didn't do better. I, I, I agree. And I love the fact that he picked heating oil because 
here's Oscar Isaac. He plays this guy who is doing the best he can to stay honest and stay uncorrupted in a business that is getting increasingly more corrupt. Yeah. And the reason why heating oil was kind of such a brilliant choice is because it's not big. It's not like the Godfather. It's it's, it's the mafia and it's it's, it's machine guns. Yeah. It's just this little world that is in sort of the the basement of society, heating oil. It's just something that people just yeah. assume happens. It's great people film. just get heating oil. You know, but yet if you look at that business, that industry back in the seventies, there was a little tiny war that no one knew about that was going yeah. on. And then this movie is all about that little tiny war that breaks out and the one last honest man who's trying to stay uncorrupted, played by Oscar Isaac, and uh, it's just terrific. Well, this is uh, so. This is a Lionsgate DVD. A twenty four was the uh, was also involved in this. I never bother figuring out who's who's doing what at a certain point. A lot of companies uh, collaborate in these. A twenty four is 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 coming on as a great yeah, interesting. As well. I just saw um, really good. One other A twenty four film that I see. I saw the um, No Bombach film while we're young. How how is it? I hear mixed. Oh, hey, helicopter. I feel like I'm in Nam. It's okay. I'm having a <laughs> Nam flashback more. <laughs> Um, uh, oh, oh, Charlie! Charlie's Charlie's taking shots at us. Quick, get down in the in the in the what do they call it? The muck, the junk. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, it's okay. It, it's his most mainstream film. Yeah, uh, I really wish it, it did not have Ben Stiller. Not that Ben Stiller is bad, but yeah. with Ben Stiller, you know what you're going to get. You mm-hmm. know the performance you're going to get with Ben Stiller. Naomi Watts is terrific. It's a li- it's a little too over the top comedic for the point he's trying to make. Um, there's some there's some passages that are completely unrealistic, like this shaman that they go visit and they drink this stuff that makes them throw up. It's supposed to be this like comedy moment. I don't get it. Adam Driver, who's sort of the it kid now, he's in the new Star Wars film. His character is a complete construct. He seems like a character who's completely manufactured just to bounce off of Ben Stiller. Yeah. So I don't really believe him. But uh, Bombbox got some interesting insights on the difference in the generations and how they approach their career and how they approach life. I get that stuff. Maybe not unique. In yeah. those opinions, but they're out there, so it's mixed. I'll check it out. At some point, I'll check it out. Anyway. Fine. Uh, wonderful, wonderful commentary on here with J.C. Chandor and, uh, and his producers. Uh, there's uh, deleted scenes and some featurettes. So, A Most Violent Year, uh, first rate, first rate. Got uh, awards from the National Board of Review and then nobody else, but definitely check it out. One of the best from last year. Actually, you know, another film, Wade, we're talking about uh, Violent Year, Another film that looked like it was on its way to something and got zero. Yep. Here it is, Wade. I'm, yep. I'm lifting it up slowly. I know. I know. I know. And I cannot speak of this objectively because I, I mm-hmm. know James. I, I, I've known James for, gosh, how long have I known him? Uh, good grief. Uh, close to 30 years. Well, the one thing so. I thought this would get would be, uh, would be cinematography. This thing is beautifully shot yeah. by Darius Kanji. Just gorgeous. And Marion Cotillard just nails it. As We're a, talking uh, about The Immigrant, of the, course. Oh, yeah, The Immigrant. I forgot. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the, I'd, the, I'd say the name. The James Gray film, The Immigrant, which uh, reunites him with River, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. I almost said River Phoenix. How's that? Uh, who, you know, he's, they've made, what, four films now together? Three, four films? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, here's the thing. Uh, my first exposure to James was, uh, here I am flirting with, with fame again and dropping, uh, dropping names. Uh, so Brian Burke, you know, who runs Bad Robot for J.J., Mm-hmm. You know, executive producer on all the Star Trek movies and Star Wars and everything. So Brian uh, is in film school at at, US, at USC. I'm in film school at UCLA. I've known Brian since he was a kid, right? Because I used to let him into the theater when I was an usher. And uh, so I'm, you know, he lives near UCLA. Calls me, says I'm shooting my uh, one of my little Super Eight projects. Uh, come on down after school, and you know, uh, okay, sure. So after class, I, you know, just scooch on down to his to his parents' house and. 
and help him with his movie, which is about a bunch of kids like doing shenanigans after uh, Halloween. Oh, this is my uh, this is my cinematographer uh, James. Just call him Bubba. Um, and there's James Gray. He's a cinematographer, and he's rolling his eyes left and right because the whole thing this this Super Eight film is so unprofessional, and it's just Brian's not doing it. You know, it was it was amazing the indignity. I mean, you know, we're, we're all we're all in our twenties here, and the the indignity with which he uh, just felt like this whole thing should be much more professional. You just knew right then and there. James knew focal lengths of lenses. He just he just screamed, "I'm a pro, I'm a professional, and I will not tolerate all of this amateurishness." And everywhere the rest of us were just goofing off. And um, sure enough, man, he just you know a couple of years later he nailed it with his thesis film, and he was on his way with with Little Odessa. But um, you know, James's movies never get the kind of respect and love that they should get. And I keep trying to figure that out. You know, he has been on the cusp, on the bubble so many times. And I feel like so many of his films should be getting, you know, five, six, seven, eight Oscar nominations. He should, he should have been nominated for Best Director by now. At least a couple of times, a guy with, with his talent. And I keep trying to figure out why, you know, he gets love at international festivals. I mean, his first film won, came in second at the Venice Film Festival. Little Odessa won the Silver... Uh, the Silver uh, Lion at the Venice Film Festival. I, I just cannot for the life of me figure out why he, his films keep getting kind of bungled by their distributors. I, I do wonder, though, if you... if this, this is a gorgeous movie. It's beautiful. It, but if if you pretend like this was directed by somebody else, yeah. you wonder whether it would have gotten more love. Yeah. I don't know if it's something that don't they don't know. like about James or, or James just evokes something. In, I don't know. Or maybe they don't... They think he had it... He's, I don't know. I don't know what they. I, I don't, don't know what it is they, they don't like about him. I don't know. But his films are terrific, and this is another terrific film. This, is, of course, is uh, again Marion Cotillard. Uh, she plays a woman uh, and with her sister sail from other uh, native Poland to New York to start a new life, and of course they get sunk into uh, into you know into the New York uh, life and prostitution and crime and uh, dirt and, and poverty and all that sort of stuff. So um, it's very very good. Joaquin Phoenix is in it. Jeremy Renner in a character who never quite felt real to me, but. That was a bit of an issue in the film for me, but otherwise, Cotillard is great, and uh, Joaquin Phoenix is so intense. I just think he's developing, or he already is, one of the most interesting actors of his generation, and almost a little bit underappreciated, because he's great. Um, And I do think, again, that the film is beautifully, beautifully shot. So, uh, yeah, don't get it. The Immigrant, it should have done better. I got uh, three. I'm going to blow here through uh, pretty quickly. All of these are straight to uh, DVD, straight to streaming, straight to video, not theatrical releases. But uh, I think there's something worthwhile in all of them. Uh, you know, Danny Trejo makes about 87 movies a year, and it's hard to sort of separate out the uh, the campy stuff from the crappy stuff from the good stuff. But uh, Vanish, which is uh, which is kind of a you know a a, a pulpy kidnapping revenge movie, uh, is is actually pretty solid. And really, really nicely done. The uh, writer, producer, director Brian uh, Bachbrader. Boy, there's a tongue twister of a name. Uh, this guy's got a this guy's got a future, and puts it together really nicely. Does a very, very good commentary along with uh, actor Adam Guthrie. And uh, you know the the whole the whole twist on on a very, very different kind of uh, kidnapping scenario is really interesting. It's very creatively done. Um, it's gritty, it's tough, it's terrifying, it's ultimately very, very satisfying. And uh, he keeps the tension up in a beautiful way. So I would not be the least bit surprised to see this guy just start getting some really, really big assignments. And the movie is Vanish on Blu-ray. You, you realize that Danny Trejo has a taco restaurant. I did not know that. He does, on La Brea. Oh, look at that. It's called Trejo's Tacos. 
Really? I swear, swear to God. That's pretty cool. I'm, I'm going to go. You are not going to We go. also have Digging Up the Marrow. Uh, Digging Up the Marrow from uh, director Adam Green with uh, inspiration from artist Alex Pardee is, is good, creepy, scary stuff. Uh, most of this horror stuff that comes out these days is all oriented towards gore and whatnot, and there's not a lot in mood and design and just giving you just just really really creepy imagery. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, it, this is all about cranking up the creep. And especially when you get into this, uh, this, this, this it, like this is the movie that Chud could and should have been if they'd have taken it seriously. Cannibalistic, humanoid, underground underground dwellers. dwellers. I'm going to tell you, if they had played their cards right with Chud, they would have made this movie. (laughs) Seriously. That's the movie it should have been. And then much sillier but funnier is uh, Wolf Cop. Half man, half wolf, all cop. I'll say that again. Half man, half wolf, all cop. And may that be the last time you ever say that. Uh, I'm going to say that all week long. Anyway, this is <laughs> this doesn't mean to be serious. Written and directed by Lowell Dean, someone I've not heard of. I'm sure we're going to hear from him a lot too. And uh, it's it basically <laughs> about a small town called Woodhaven. They all have names like that. Woodhaven just sounds like a place where something horrible is going to happen. No, my grandparents lived on Woodhaven Boulevard. Did they really? In Queens for 50 years. They had that ha- well. they had that co-op in Woodhaven Boulevard for over 50 years. Wade Major. All right. Well, How fine. dare you make fun of my grandparents' home? <laughs> anyway, this is about a guy, about a small town cop who 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 becomes a werewolf in a rather horrifying way. And uh, you know what? It's funny. It's just clever and funny and witty and a little bit campy, but not too campy. And I, I had fun with it. But, uh, you know, it's, it, we'll, we'll see where it goes. There's no one in it, per, per se, but it's fun. Uh, wait, here's a weird little uh, film that probably uh, slipped your radar called yep. The Voices. This is with Ryan Reynolds. Oh, of course. He's in everything. He's in everything. But this is, uh, I, this got no love, no attention, no nothing. It's just bizarre. It is Ryan Reynolds. He plays a guy who works at a bathtub factory. It, it's, it's one of those very... It's one of those self-consciously offbeat sort of comedies that knows what it's trying to be and wears it on its sleeve. And sometimes you kind of check out on that. Oh, yeah, I get it. You're trying to charm me with your weirdness. But then sometimes you kind of uh, of buy into it. And I think here I kind of bought into it. Reynolds plays a guy who works at a bathtub factory. And he's working with a shrink so that he can try to get the girl of his dreams. Played by Gemma Arterton who works in his his office. And then uh, strange things happen. She stands him up. And he winds up talking to his cat and talking to his dog, and then he might get violent, and you just never know because it's the voices. So it's pretty warped. It's I wouldn't call it witty. I would call it just self-consciously strange. But if you want to see Ryan Reynolds in a way like you've never seen him before, and hopefully we'll never see him again, uh, check out uh, the voices. It's definitely a bit of a of a self-conscious mess, but. You know, it's pretty cool. It's a cool little find. It's you know what? It's one of those things where it's Ryan Reynolds. It's got Jackie Weaver in it, Gemma Arterton in it. Jackie Weaver is all you need to say. I'm and there. Uh, so again, it's crazy, self-consciously crazy, mind trippy, pretty, uh, pretty gruesome, pretty interesting. All right. Uh, what would Jesus do? The journey continues. WWJD. Uh, this would be completely forgettable and uh, easy to neglect. It, you know, just it's a faith-based film, and it's for the faith-based crowd, and it's got you know, it's aimed tar- except it's got John Schneider and Lorenzo Lamas in it. And oh I, my and God, I thought, are you kidding me? Like Lorenzo Lamas of Falcon Crest and John Schneider of the Dukes of Hazard? 
I am so feeling 1979 right now. Terrible. They look good, both of them. No, they don't. Yeah, they do. Uh, but this is about all they can do now. Uh, they do. They look good. I mean, considering that they're both about 77 years old, uh, they look good. No, they're, they're younger than that. Uh, look, it, but it is. It is, a, it is a faith-based film. And it's, uh, you know, it's very engineered toward that audience. And unless you really, really, really are, uh, are enamored of films that are targeted to that audience, this will not speak to you. Uh, it's basically about a, uh, you know, a pastor who has a brother who's a black sheep and he's trying to sort of bring him back to the fold. Um, fairly predictable, not horrible, uh, but very, very much the, the kind of uh, marginal target demographic that you would expect. Uh, wait, here's another piece of crap from Katherine Heigl. You, you would think Katherine Heigl would realize at this point no. in, that no. she is the most horrible person no. who ever lived and no. everyone hates her. Nope. It's funny. I have somebody at the I know somebody at the office who has worked with her and her mother, who's her manager. I've, I've met her mother. And uh, they really do say that, that she and the mother are the worst. I've met her. Her mother was a lovely lady when I met her. That was before uh, it all blew up big with Grey's Anatomy and so forth. I mean, this was a number of years ago. This was, you know, she was like a teenager trying to sort of figure it out. And I, I met her mother... At the time, you know, at a, at a, at a, I was on a panel, and uh, we talked a little bit afterwards. And I may, I may still have contact information. Should I exploit that? Should oh. I invite her on the show? To, Heck yeah! Should I call her up and go? Can you? Can you? Could uh, you remember me? We we talked for ten seconds, twenty seven years ago. Could your daughter maybe come on the show and explain why her movies are just so dreadful? I, I just find it weird when. That would go over you, well, wouldn't it? Yeah, are you kidding? I, yeah. I, I would give you all the money in my wallet, which is probably like $6 <laughs> to do that. You would think that somebody, you, you have to assume she's self-aware enough to know how much she is hated. And yet, in, for somebody whose movie career no. never really took off, right, and she's trying to resuscitate herself. She had that NBC show, State of Affairs, which yeah. I think just went away. You would think that she would pick a better film vehicle You'd than think. Home Sweet Hell. No. Because it's got Jim Belushi, oh boy, Jordana Brewster, whatever, you know, Demi Moore lookalike from the 80s. And she just plays this horrible, shrill woman whose husband cheats on her. So instead of dumping him, they just, she decides that she will do anything to sort of make it seem like they're not, their life is normal and just like nothing ever happened. And it, the thing is just, this thing is dismal and just not funny at all, totally insipid, really stupid, toothless. I just don't understand... Who is guiding her career? I mean, is nope, it the mom? I don't either. I, I don't know. Maybe it's the mom. Don't know. I just, I don't can't know. imagine her thinking, you know what? This, Home Sweet Hell, this is the movie that's going to resuscitate my career. No. She, there's no way she, th- for, Not if, a chance. if she did think that, she should just go ahead, go ahead and work at Baskin Robbins because she's an <laughs> idiot. You know? I just, it's just bizarre. It's completely bizarre. Yeah, well, that is what it is. Uh, and uh, this is the last of our new movies. This is the last of our new movies here, Mark. What? This is the last of the new movies this week. Uh, Song of the Sea, uh, which is a fantastic, wonderful animated film from the uh, people who did Secret of Kells. Oh, yeah, I like Secret, that film. Secret of Kells was great, and Song of the Sea is just as good. It's just absolutely delightful. Uh, fantastic 2D animation, beautiful, beautiful artwork. Uh, this, you know, just another, another Oscar-nominated wonder for them. And uh, this is uh, another kind of Celtic legend adapted into an animated film. This is based on the Irish legend of the Selkies, right? Basically, uh, um, mermaids, which previously was also the subject of the... Splash. No. <laughs> no, of, the, uh, of uh, the Secret of Roninish. That's true. John Sayles' film. 
so you know you, you basically get a different treatment of the same legend here, but uh, it's it's just wonderful. It's uh, you know that's a, it's a, this old Irish legend, and uh, I mean they're you know the, the Selkies are they're sort of mermaids. They're they're like half seal basically. They're not half fish, but it's essentially the that same thing. That does not sound like a very productive life. You're a half <laughs> well, seal, half what? Mermaid, half fish? Half, half human, half seal. That or, just sounds... You know, seal, you, seal humans. You know what? All I will say this. They will probably... A half seal, half human, probably more likely to get laid than me. Yeah, probably. At this point. I, I hear you. Just put it out there. Well, anyway, it's a, it is a lovely, lovely story. It's great for children. It's great for adults. And the animation is fantastic. The artwork is just... I, I can't... I can't. I, I hope that they just keep, these these guys keep making movies. I really do because it's wonderful. We need more of that animation. All right, uh, Mark. We got a bunch of um, we got like uh, old movies, classic movies. Uh, let's, let's. Are they older or are they classic? They're 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 old and classic. So let's uh, let's roar through some of these here. I'm gonna do. You know what? I'm gonna do this pile of Blu-rays as fast as I possibly can because we've got we've got concert stuff and TV still to go, and we got. Uh, Half the show. So here's here. I'm going to roll through this real fast. Okay, you ready? Yeah, do it. Okay, uh, Timeless, who does usually Timeless is doing a lot of uh, a lot of really cool stuff these days. They're picking up a lot of uh, you know the old like the old Jerry Anderson shows. We're going to talk about a couple of those in a moment. Uh, mostly old Western TV shows. Um, we're getting some Blu-rays from Timeless, and they're picking up some good stuff. They're starting to do exactly what Olive and uh, Twilight Time and these others are doing. They're going. They're all going to the MGM library apparently because MGM doesn't want to release any of their own Blu-rays. And sure enough, look who ta- look what Timeless picked up. Robert Mitchum in Thunder Road. Are you kidding me? How did how did anybody else miss this? So well well played, uh, Timeless for for finding this one. Uh, Thunder Road is uh, is just a, a wonderful kind of uh, old uh, you know action quasi noir that uh, is an awful lot of fun. And it's not quite from the uh, the hot rod and biker era. Uh, it sort of is leading into it. This is from 1958, right when you're you're still kind of in the greaser car vein. But in a few years, it's going to be all about the wild one and you know uh, hot rods and and all that kind of stuff. And then American the graffiti. Stuff. And then American graffiti. Uh, but anyway, the idea here is that uh, uh, Mitchum is this Korean War veteran who's running moonshine. And uh, speaking of, you know, the Dukes of Hazard, and uh, he's got everybody closing in, and he's got to stay one step ahead of them. And it's, it's, a, it's really solid. It is really, really solid. Directed by Arthur Ripley, who never did much else uh, of note. But uh, in this case, uh, you know, Robert Mitchum had a story, and he found the right people to do it, and it turned into kind of a cult classic. So that is Thunder Road. Now, not, not the Bruce Springsteen Thunder Road. Uh, no, no, because okay. that was never made into a movie. Got it. We have a Blu-ray of Invaders from Mars, which I am so, so fond of. This is a Toby Hooper film that is uh, really just kind of a, a, a sort of a, I don't want to say it's a parody of, but it's a bit of a throwback to those old uh, exploitation films of the, uh, the 50s, the, uh, the alien invasion movies, the flying saucer and giant alien movies. And he does a wonderful job with it. This was a Canon production at the time. Uh, another one from the MGM library, Scream Factory, uh, the subsidiary of Shop Factory, is putting this one out. And uh, it has, of course, Karen Black in it, who did lots of low-budget exploitation stuff and does a great job. Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live. Timothy Bottoms uh, from uh, Apocalypse Now. Bud Court, always a lot of fun, from uh, Harold and Maude. Uh, and Louise Fletcher, Oscar nominee and winner for Best Actress from uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. That is a great cast right there. 
And uh, Wade Williams the third, who also was a big exploitation film producer, did, was one of the producers. And John Dykstra of Star Wars fame did the effects. You can't lose. Screenplay. You know who wrote the screenplay? Um, Charles Brackett. Co-written by Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. Thank you. Alien. What a, I mean, this, is, this is like an A-list bunch of people. Invaders from Mars. It's a whole ton of fun. You just can't get any more a fun. A ton of fun. A ton of fun. I think one of Toby Hooper's best films. Maybe second best after Poltergeist. What? They're remaking so. Poltergeist. I know. I, I have really mixed feelings about I that. I do. I, I was really against it, and then I saw the trailer, and I thought, well, you put Sam Rockwell in it, damn you. That, that, <laughs> that already wins points for me. Um, Richard Gere in Breathless. A completely unnecessary remake of the uh, Godard film. Completely pointless. But Jim McBride, decent director. Very decent director. And uh, I was kind of sold on this because they cast Richard Gere opposite Valerie Kaprisky. And if you don't know who Valerie Kaprisky is, uh, she was really hot stuff. Really super mega hot stuff in French films in the 1980s in particular. And that's when I was living in France. And I swear, Premiere Magazine, like every other month, had a picture of Valerie Kaprisky on the cover. It was just no getting away from her. She was on the cover of something every week. And she's, you know, in your, in your parlance, delicious. Really? It's beyond. Wow. So, uh, you know, this is an American film. It doesn't use her as well as a French film would. But uh, I'll tell you, 1983, Richard Gere, Breathless, Valerie Kaprisky. Not the Godard film, but it, it holds its own just because Valerie Kaprisky's in it. That's enough for me, man. Uh, Hooper, Burt Reynolds, when he was doing all these just really stupid Hal Needham movies. And uh, here, Hal Needham being a former stuntman and Burt Reynolds always imagining himself a stuntman. They made a movie about a stuntman called Hooper. It's silly. It's dumb. It's a typical Burt Reynolds movie from the era, but what do you got? There it is. Uh, the Corrupter is a very deeply misguided James Foley film that uh, doesn't quite properly use Chow Yun Fat, but it uses him a little bit better than some of the what other. What happened to Chow Yun Fat? This is Chow Yun Fat and Mark Wahlberg not really pairing up terribly well, and James Foley vanished right after this movie. This was like his last hope to kind of resurrect. No, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. You know what? I I, rem- I, I have another story. Okay, so James Foley's first film was the, um, oh gosh, I can't even remember the name of it now, the Aidan Quinn, um, uh, Daryl Hannah thing. Aiden Quinn, Daryl yeah, Hannah. right. Got okay, right. Don't it's stop a, recording. No. Uh, look it up. Well, I'll look it up. Anyway, uh, it, it, so, the, you know, it's it, right. He, Aiden Quinn, he's, he's young at the time. He's the young, hot guy. It's, a, you know, the teen romance thing, and he's an outcast and yada, yada. Very stylish. And Foley was right out of USC at the time. This is early 80s. Again, when I'm working as an usher, letting Brian Burke, uh, you know, into the theater uh, without paying. And um, to collect autographs. So James Foley, anyway, we have the film. James Foley shows up. It's his first film. He's nervous as can be. And I must have had like 40, 50 minutes of conversations with him. You know, he's talking to me, an usher. Who am I? And I'm just hanging out, and I'm like, no, man, it's doing good. He's like, I don't know. Do people like it? He was so unbelievably insecure at the time. And, and you can imagine. He's fresh out of film school. He's, he got a feature going. You know, why not? But now he's not doing anything. I feel like, wow. You know. At yeah. close range. Yeah. I mean, anyway. It's too bad. I wonder what else he's uh, might have going. He, you know, I'd hire him. You want right? fries with that? That's what he says right now. You I'd want fries him. with that? I'd hire him. Oliver Stone was a producer on this. Anyway, uh, it's not his fault. It just isn't a very good script. But uh, it's they're, really they're, your fault. Wade. They're trying. They're trying to make Chow Yun Fat into you know an American star, and it's the, all these vehicles that he initially had. They weren't very good. And Mark Wahlberg wasn't then who he is now. 
Uh, after the sunset, man, is this pointless. Uh, Don Cheadle, Woody Harrelson, Pierce Brosnan, Salma Hayek. I don't really, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, this just did not work in any way whatsoever. And uh, you know the reason this didn't work? You. Brett Ratner. <laughs> uh, Although he's becoming a hell of a producer. His Rat you, Pack company. You, you know what? Uh, bring the money, but please stop directing. Just don't direct any more movies. Just bring that money. Just bring that, pile that Chinese money in here, bring it in, and give it to other people to make movies. But please, for the love of God, stop directing them yourself. Just don't do that. No more. That's, that would be my plea to him. Uh, Dante Spinotti shot this, uh, you know, it, it, but it, it, uh, seriously, it's just, it's just one of those crime films that you look at and you just go, I'm sorry. This, uh, this, is, this is like what happens when somebody thinks that they're doing Ocean's Eleven, but they're not even coming close. Well, that was like that tower heist. Oh, and dreadful. Also did. Dreadful. Yeah, uh, Wade, one. we're going to be talking about the three classic uh, actresses. Yes. From the old school. Yes. 50s, 60s kind of thing. Let's start with Debbie Reynolds. From TMC, we have Turner Classic Movies, Greatest Classics, Legends Film Collection, Debbie Reynolds. This is four DVDs, not Blu-rays. They include, they're all good. Well, there's one ringer, but they're all good. Singing in the Rain. One of my all-time favorite movies. Sure. How the West Was Won. Lovely. Now, this is not in Cinerama or whatever. It's just it's just like How the West Was Won. Yeah. As you know, How the West Was Won was one of the only was, natively Cinerama shot films, and yeah. it looks beautiful when you see it the way it was supposed to be seen, but in this the, is just a DVD. Yes. No, the original Cinerama film was something like uh, 87 to 1 aspect ratio. <laughs> you actually had to start swirling around in order to see the whole screen, and it, and it, and it exceeded not only your field of view, but it went outside of our dimension. It went into another yes, dimension. It's, it's so wide. You know. But I, I love How the West Was Won, so I guess that's worth it. I uh, love Jimmy Stewart in that. Anyway, Unsinkable Molly Brown, also good. Singing Nun, not my favorite. But you do get Singing in the Rain, How the West Was Won, and Unsinkable Molly Brown, nice. all on this greatest classic Legends film collection DVD set, Debbie Reynolds. Next, we have uh, four from Maureen O'Hara. I'm really happy with a lot of these. Hunchback of Notre Dame, the 1939 version with uh, Charles Lawton as Quasimodo. That's here. Uh, Dance Girl Dance, uh, a bit of a throwaway, but it still stars Lucille Ball, who we all love her. The Spanish Man, which is like meh, and Wings of Eagles, which I kind of like. It's with John Wayne. Um, so there you go. So we have uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Dance Girl Dance, Spanish Main, and did I say Spanish Man before? Spanish Main and Wings of Eagles on the Maureen O'Hara TMC Greatest Classic Legends Film Collection. That one uh, I don't really like as much as the, as the, uh, the Debbie Reynolds one. And then finally, we have a big box set, Doris Day, The Essential Collection. Now, this is a beautiful box set of <clears throat> DVDs, not Blu-rays. Mm. Come on, Warner. Get with it, man. Stop it. Uh, anyway, a lot of Doris Day movies uh, ranging from 1948 to 1966. Uh, it does have Calamity Jane, which is nice. does have Pajama Game. does have Please Don't Eat the Daisies. Um, it does have T for Two. has some other ones, too, that are cute but not her classics. Romance on the High Seas, My Dream is Yours. Uh, so if you love Doris Day, this, or let's say if your parents love Doris Day, uh, this is an amazing, fantastic, beautiful set for them. It also, because Doris Day was a big star of her time, a lot of the co-stars in these films are really great. Rock Hudson, Gary Cooper, Joan Crawford, Edward G. Robinson, right? So uh, Jimmy Cagney, David Niven. So... There's a lot to watch, a lot to enjoy, uh, a lot of filler here, but again, your parents may like it. Beautiful. All right, I got some Warner stuff here, some good Warner juice. 
Oh, uh, Mark. Warner Jews? Warner Juice. Harry Warner and Jack Warner, I'm just saying, they were Jews. <laughs> Warner Juice. Uh, first off, some Blu-ray debuts. We've got another Burt Reynolds film, Sharky's Machine, which I'm actually fond of. First time on Blu-ray. Never been on Blu-ray before. And uh, this is based on a novel, actually. And uh, it's, it's, this is one of the last uh, Burt Reynolds movies that is really, really well put together. And I say that not just because my good friend and yours, Richard Libertini, is in it and does really well in it. Uh, but uh, it's it's sharp. Rachel Ward uh, kind of was was this was her first introduction uh, at the time, and she of course went on to do things like uh, you know the uh, the Thornbirds and all kinds of other great stuff. But uh, Rachel uh, Rachel Ward is fantastic in this. Oh, and uh, the, the, the 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 you know Rachel Ward in uh, Against All Odds. Oh, that's right with with uh, Brian Brown. Fantastic. Who she married. That's right. Yep. She was so hot back then. Uh, William Fraker, who also did... Uh, William Frakes from Star Trek The Next Generation? No, no. William Fraker, the cinematographer. William Frakes from Star Trek The Next Generation? No, William Fraker, the great cinematographer. Legendary cinematographer. <laughs> Stop it. Um, and uh, Gerald DePago wrote the screenplay. Oh Gerald DePago, who recently wrote uh, a fantastic script for um, the uh, Words and Pictures last year, which I loved. Does, does Juliette Binoche and Clive Owen? Does Gerald Abago own a Winnebago? Gerald Abago, great screenwriter. Gerald Abago own a Winnebago? No, stop it. I will. I will. I will turn this ship around. <laughs> anyway, uh, and the nice thing about Sharky's Machine is Burt Reynolds directed it. That's the that's the punchline here. Uh, that is weird because he, he never got any sort of traction in his directing a, career. A, but he's a good director when he when he does it when he has something like this he's really good with it. Uh, and then three Blu-ray debuts that are all kind of rock and roll-ish. Uh, Detroit Rock City, uh, which I was never terribly fond of. Uh, but, you know, this is the film that kind of put Adam Rifkin on the map a little bit, sort of. And uh, we like Adam Rifkin. We've interviewed him for the show. I think his, his, his subsequent stuff is a lot better. But um, there are three commentaries on here, deleted scenes, uh, two music videos. This film has a real following. And I'm a big fan of Kiss. Uh, I, I just for some reason, that film never connected to me. Singles which was uh, Cameron Crowe's uh, fantastic directing debut. I still love this film. I think it's great. I think uh, Campbell Scott and Bridget Fonda are wonderful in it. What has happened to both of them, I don't know. Um, Kira Sedgwick, it's just, uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful look at just young couples and uh, set against the whole rock scene in you know, 1990s Seattle. It's a really sharp film. And Matt Dillon with the long hair, even that works. It, 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 he's not right for the part, but... Somehow it works. And then Empire Records, a film which, uh, oddly enough, I read the script for this before they ever made the film, and uh, I didn't think the script was very good, but I don't know, you know, Renee Zellweger and uh, a whole bunch of others kind of came of age with this movie. Debbie Mazur and, and uh, Liv Tyler all kind of started their careers with this movie, and uh, it obviously hit a nerve, didn't hit one with me, but, uh, you know, there, that's out there as well on Blu-ray. And then from the Warner Archive collection, uh, three that I, I will unreservedly recommend. This is, uh, they just keep mining their library for wonderful, wonderful stuff. Leslie Caron and Dirk Bogard in The Doctor's Dilemma is just so charming. Directed by the great Anthony Asquith. This was originally an MGM release. It's, of course, part of the Warner Library because they own all the old MGM films. Uh, but this is based on a fantastic George Bernard Shaw play. And uh, so it has that classic, you know, Euro slash British uh, sensibility to it. Wonderfully done. I don't know that there's ever been a, a Shaw play that wasn't 
well adapted by some great British director. And this is this is one of them. It's just absolutely delightful. Um, and Dirk Bogard, one of my all-time favorite actors as well. Uh, you can never go wrong with David Niven either. David Niven in Where the Spies Are. Uh, this is also just an awful lot of fun. Beautiful, beautiful photography. Uh, really fun Val Guest sensibilities. I, you know, Val Guest, another just really great director and, and just always... Always gave his films a certain panache that, you know, is, is sort of unmistakable. Uh, this is uh, kind of a sort of a spy film, not your traditional spy film from the era, but uh, certainly enough to be, uh, be of interest to anybody who's a fan of the era. And then lastly, uh, a film that I had totally forgotten even existed, another one from the, uh, the MGM library, originally an Ealing comedy, and now falls into the Warner Archive, uh, the Warner Archive collection uh, domestically. Alec Guinness in All at Sea, uh, a whole lot of fun. Alec Guinness's old movies are just such a treasure, and uh, this is directed by Charles Friend, who I'm only marginally familiar with in a in a very distant way. Have not seen many of his films. I think this may be the second, maybe third uh, Charles Friend film I've seen, but it's certainly the best. And uh, you know, Alec Guinness, first rate. Um, just a just a really a wonderful Ealing comedy. So there you go. Warner Brothers has done right by us this week. They always do. They always do. Uh, let's see here. Um, you know what? I'm gonna make. I'm gonna, let me give this one a, a quick mention. Then we'll move on to television. Mark, don't let me stop you, Wade. This is uh, The House of Mystery, uh, otherwise known as La Maison du Mystère, which is a 10-episode classic uh, serial from Flickr Alley and the Black Hawk Films Collection. About uh, seven and a half hours of serial from uh, the wonderful silent era of 1921 uh, through 1923. And uh, it just, it, it, this is really gorgeous stuff. It's really, really gorgeous stuff. Um, the source material has been incredibly well cared for and incredibly well preserved. And uh, the the transfer here is just spectacular. You get a uh, you know the the story here. Um, it's a little bit kind of uh, how do we how, how would I put it? It's it's it it's um, it's kind of pulpy and it's kind of melodramatic. It, I guess this is sort of the thing that would have been considered the equivalent of a, a I don't want to say a superhero film back in the silent era, um, but it uh, it certainly had it certainly catered to the same audience at the time, which is you know anybody who's interested in sort of these these big sprawling crime melodramas with lots of twists and turns. And uh, anyway, this is uh, apparently the uh, material was originally in the hands of the Cinémathèque Française, who did a lot of restoration work over the years. So it comes into the hands of, uh, of Black Hawk and uh, gets a wonderful release from uh, from uh, Flickr Alley. If you were a fan of silent serials, The House of Mystery, um, a, a serial in ten episodes, must absolutely be in your collection. Yeah. Wait. Let's talk about Jerry Anderson. Yeah. Jerry Anderson, as Wade well knows, is the uh, creator and virtuoso behind the Super Marionation. Which I watched so much of growing up. You know what? I got to say, I mean, look, I love Space 1999, which obviously was not Super Marionation. I love that. I love that show so much. Uh, but I got to say, a lot of that Super Marionation stuff is just silly and it doesn't hold up. I'm going on record. It's really stupid. And there's actually two Jerry Anderson series that I bet many Jerry Anderson fans have never even seen. And right now they're on DVD, not Blu-ray. The complete series of Captain Scarlet and the Misterons. Oh, I love this. No, you don't. This is the dumbest show. So get this. (laughs) Wade, the year is 2068. 
and that's coming up. It really is coming up. Yeah. And uh, you see, there's there's uh, evil people from Mars, and what these evil people from Mars can do is any object or yeah. I guess a person that they kill or blow up or destroy, they can then become that object or person. Gnarly. It's really weird. And then, but get this, uh, get this. No. Turns out that uh, Captain Scarlet, who's trying to protect the Earth yeah. from the evil Martians, yeah. he gains that power. Oh. He is somehow able to gain the same power that the villains have. Psych. So now Captain Scarlet, whenever an object or a person or whatever, a thing, yeah. any sort of noun is destroyed, <laughs> he can become that thing. And it's all in Supermarionation. Pretty sweet. Um, that one at least. That one at least has the. I want to know. That at least has the advantage of, of having just a, a, a ridiculously convoluted. Uh, what uh, premise. continent? What continent did the herb come from that Jerry and Sylvia were smoking when they cooked that story up? I, know. I just want to know what continent. But then there's there's something that there's the other it's exotic. show. It's exotic. I'll, I know that the other show is Fireball XL uh, XL Five and Fireball XL Five. That's classic. No, it's not classic. It's yeah. it's stupid. It's <laughs> it's from this it's from the early sixties. It's actually in black and white, and it's such a product of its time because nowadays but when this was can, the first one. I, I think this was the first uh, Super Marionation show. Well, also it's like it's all about like the World Space Patrol patrolling Galactic Sector Twenty Five. It's awesome. just so silly. It's Great. But it's 1962, so um, I don't know what to say. You know what? Uh, <laughs> Sweet. Let's <laughs> guy with the glasses. That's great. I love it. That guy with the glasses. I love it. It's just terrible. It's fantastic. Just, you know what? Just re- rewatch Space 1999. When, when, when the, that, the little, that, that, that little baby go, goes into the... Uh, remember the, the Space 1999 when the baby goes into the incubator and then he gets bigger and bigger? Yes. And then it, he, it, the whole thing happens during the, during the, uh, the pre-title sequence. <laughs> It's great. Alpha Child, man. It's the best. <laughs> She's screaming and they run in. It's like a, he, he, the baby was just born about 10 minutes ago and now he's like an eight, eight-year-old child crammed into an incubator. Ah, it's freaky. I love it. It's the best. <laughs> and it all happens in the first like 90 seconds. That's, that, that's the way you start a show. There's not, none of this, you know. Oh, come on. Law and order, like the, the average law and order starts with some guy getting killed on a, on a, on yeah, a street it's corner. it's boring. It's boring. What? Start with a start with a baby that turns into an eight year old in an incubator. That's what I'm talking about. I want that baby to keep growing, the and then he like suffocates, or he like cracks all of his bones because he, he can't fit in the incubator anymore, and the incubator the won't won't break. It's the best. Anyway, I got some titles here from BFS. Uh, some really great British stuff. This is the story. One is a, a documentary series, the story of London, a modern city with a re- remarkable past. Uh, there are uh, six episodes to this, and it's great. If you've ever been to London, you'll you just you'll realize how thorough this is. And if you haven't, it'll make you want to go there in a heartbeat. Um, really, really cool. The London Underground, the River Thames, castles, palaces, parks, and Royal London. And that just about covers everything except shopping, frankly. It doesn't get into Bond Street and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, just about everything you'd really be compelled by as a, as a tourist is covered here. And it's beautiful. Fantastic. Uh, you know, Londinium Town is uh, one of the great cities of all time. I love the London. It's I used so to good, go there all it? the time. Great. I haven't been in years. Neither and have I, I. And I miss it. I have a real job now. I can't uh, take off for, uh, for a summer anymore and go to London. Why don't we just, you know, it's because we're not French. If we were French, we could, just, we could just call up work and go, I'm on strike today. No, it's not because we're not French. It's because we're not independently wealthy. Uh, that's probably it. Might have something to do with it. Uh, if you are a Downton Abbey fan, you will love a show like Troubles. 
Uh, Troubles takes place in Ireland just after and just right about at the end of uh, World War One. It stars Ian Charlson and uh, Ian Richardson, both absolutely wonderful actors. Ian Charlson, of course, from uh, Chariots of Fire. Ian Richardson with a long and varied career, everything from from uh, Dr. Zhivago through to uh, Greystoke. And uh, it is one of those British period historical things. And uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's good drama. It's good melodrama, good uh, primetime soap opera wrapped up as, uh, as, as more kind of... Uh, you know, respectable television. And then there's also The Hanging Gale, which was a, a really, really big deal when it first came out. Uh, this stars the McGann brothers and Michael Kitchen. And Michael Kitchen, you know, has been a fixture on British television for decades now. It feels like generations. But uh, this is also set in Ireland, and this is set older. This is in the Great Famine of 1846, when tons and tons of the Irish came to the United States and became cops in Boston. Or so it seems. Uh, or so I've been told. Uh, but anyway, this is uh, this is essentially a uh, a, a um, uh, kind of a, a family melodrama as well, with uh, Michael Kitchen playing the uh, kind of this evil enforcer for this. Uh, you know, the whole thing is kind of it's about you know serfdom in Ireland, and Michael Kitchen's the bad guy. He's the I guess he would be the equivalent of the guy who collects protection money. In if this were about Italians in uh, Hell's Kitchen in the nineteen fifties or forties, right? Be kind of the same deal, sure. So anyway, uh, yeah. But the whole backdrop of the uh, of the famine is is rough and tumble and pretty gritty stuff. So that's fun. Oh, uh, Mark, did you ever watch One Step Beyond? Uh, no, although I do like the song from Madness, One Step Beyond. I don't know that. One was not a mad- step beyond. Yeah, I was. I wasn't into that whole mod ska scene. Well, anyway, One Step Beyond. Uh, it has been out on DVD in a number of different incarnations, and uh, I am losing. I'm fast losing track of, of who has access to what episodes and what episodes have or have not been released. But there are 70 episodes of uh, One Step Beyond, the John Newland uh, show that was out there alongside uh, Twilight Zone and uh, uh, Outer Limits and all the other anthologies of the 50s, and uh, it's not. Uh, you know, the Hitch- the Alfred Hitchcock presents. They were all kind of part of the same mix. One Step Beyond is, uh, it's not Twilight Zone. It actually started before Twilight Zone, but it's it's pretty good. Uh, Newland is a good host. And a lot of, you know, the thing here is that you see a lot of really great talent from the, uh, from the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Uh, a lot of actors sort of honing their craft and making their first and early appearances. And that's always fun. So uh, this is, uh, this is a, you know, this is from Film Chest who has released a pretty good transfer of these shows. I wouldn't say it transcends any others, but it's decent. So there's another, uh, another release of One Step Beyond, 70 episodes in a nice compact set. Oh, uh, wait, we have uh, the complete seventh season of Barney Miller. This is the uh, penultimate season of Barney Miller. This, of course, was the uh, sitcom that took place in a, a New York uh, Greenwich Village uh, police squad. Um, so what's interesting about this season, as the show runs out of steam, is that you know the show started in 19... 19- 75, and now by season seven, you're in the early 80s, and New York, of course, is really starting to take a crap in terms of crime and poverty and whatnot. So now, in this season, they turn the precinct into a homicide-only squad, and some of the cops have to wear bulletproof vests. Actually, some of the detectives have to wear bulletproof vests, too. So even though this is a sitcom, some of that real-world crime that helped bring down 
uh, New York, at least back then. Now, of course, New York is, is, is way on its way to being a millionaire's club only. Um, it starts to, starts to seep its way into this little sitcom. So Barney Miller season seven, it's uh, pretty good. Still same cast. Hal Linden, who's still around. Max Gale, Ron Glass. So there you go, Barney Miller. Now, we also have something that should have come out um, over the um, over the holidays because it's a great box set if you're so inclined. The complete series, all 139 episodes of MacGyver. MacGruber! Exactly. Which actually was not an unfunny movie. Um, MacGyver. Now, MacGyver, of course, is the series with Richard, uh, what's his name, Dean Anderson. And you and realize they're making MacGruber into another movie. They're doing another MacGruber movie. They are? Yeah, they are. Is that new information? <laughs> it is. I remember when we, when we were doing um, Stupid for Movies, yeah. remember we did the show late that week because, now this is back when the, yeah. this is back when we had all sorts sure. of hopes and dreams for the show, and of course yeah. that died. But anyway, we had like a 7.30 screening of MacGruber, which I guess was the big release of the week. And we were going to see MacGruber yeah. at 7, 7, 7.30 screening, whatever it was. Sure. Drive out to Mike's and then review it, having just left the theater. Yeah, and I so remember we did. that. We saw it. We were sitting in the back row. We think to ourselves, this movie is not terrible. It's kind of funny. We were surprised. <laughs> like, it was most kind of the, funny. Like, like most of those SNL sketch, thing, sketch things. It, 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 it took a good thing and it stretched it too far, but it, it, it still somehow managed to sustain a certain charm. So MacGyver, if you don't know, is, is, it's about the adventurer who can escape any trap with, uh, with belly button lint and a, and a, and a nail clipper. <laughs> That's like what he does. So we have seven seasons. We also have two uh, MacGyver TV movies that have never been released on DVD. Uh, so there you go. for it's the good mo- box. I believe that the ultimate recipient of this box set would be Marge Simpson's sisters. Because Marge <laughs> Simpson's true. sisters love MacGyver. Oh, man. I forgot that. I totally forgot about that. Uh, Amy Schumer uh, is becoming kind of a thing now. Her, her- By the way, TV's Phil Klein just saw her live last night in Did concert. Really? Yes. You know, she's kind of becoming a thing now. Like I, most people I know don't really know who she is. That's what but- I told Phil. I was like, I was like, Monday, nobody knew who Amy Schumer was. By Wednesday, she was the hottest thing in the world. Well, because the trailer for Trainwreck, which is a new Judd Apatow film that she and Apatow wrote together, was getting all kinds of heat, and then they just showed it at uh, South by Southwest. Was it South by Southwest where it debuted? Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it was really well received. Super well received and got great reviews. And this is so inside Amy Schumer's her TV show from Comedy Central. Uh, the first two seasons are out, and uh, they they rushed this thing out. I don't think they. This was kind of a late addition to the schedule. Uh, I didn't have it on my calendar. I didn't see it on. Any, I didn't get any releases on it. But I think once the good reviews came out on uh, on Trainwreck. Paramount uh, and the people at Comedy Central in particular were like, let's get her out there. Let's, let's ride that pony. So they, uh, they threw out the uh, first two seasons of Inside Amy Schumer uh, with ultraviolet access on it as well. And uh, it's funny. I, I was utterly unfamiliar with this show. But you know what? She's good. She is good. She's funny. She's smart. Uh, a little bit crass, but not too crass. Not like the comedy rides on it. You know, she uses it well. And uh, I, I think she has got a, a big career in front of her. And I'm just gonna I'm gonna ask you right now. How long do you think it is before somebody makes a movie with Amy Schumer and and who Amy, am I thinking of? Colonel Clink. No, Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, yeah. Now Melissa McCarthy, I, she's hilarious. Amy she's Schumer a, and Melissa McCarthy. How how can that not work? I'm not on the it Amy writes Schumer, itself. I'm not on the Amy Schumer train yet, only because I don't really know that much about her. All right. What I've seen is like was like that typical Sarah Silverman. Oh, I'm going to make uh, jokes she's, about she's uh, funnier than that. About vaginas because yeah. I because I can and it's so transgressive and blah blah blah. I get it. Just be funny. Just say something <laughs> clever, please. 
Like, I'd rather have you say something clever about airplane food than say something unclever about vaginas. Okay. Well, okay. (laughs) All right. On BET, there's a show called The Book of Negroes, which is a fascinating show. Really, the shame of this show is that it took 12 years of slaves for this show to finally have the heat to be able to make it. Because it's really not a bad show, and it's with Cuba Gooding Jr. plays uh, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. He's in this. It's a, it's based on a novel. It's about this woman Amanada Diallo who uh, was kidnapped by slave traders in West Africa. She wound up being a slave in South Carolina, and it's all about her journey. And there's a lot of great stuff in it. And uh, I, you know, BET is a bit of a throwaway network. It's just it's just nothing but crap. But the Book of Negroes is so interesting, and it's just a great show. And Louis Gossett Jr. is in it. Uh, I just wish that uh, BET would maybe take the uh, lead from this show and how good it is and actually clean up their act a little bit because I just think their programming is just terrible. So this is a great show, Book of Negroes. It's, it's, it's long overdue on television. Uh, you know, and so I just really hope that, they run, take, take, that BET takes the ball and runs with it. I agree. Maybe the best, maybe the best thing that they've ever actually originated. Well, Robert you know? Johnson, that, that he, all he cares about is money. That guy, he just doesn't want. He, he, yeah. he deal. It's just it, I, don't get me started because I'll get in trouble. But I'm just saying that <laughs> that you know, BET could be something so inspiring. It could be, and then it's just not. But you get something this, like well, this, this then good. that can maybe it can take the ball and run with that. Uh, also, we have uh, Manhattan. This is a show that uh, it's all about uh, building the first atomic bomb. Of course, Manhattan, meaning the Manhattan Project, the uh, Robert Oppenheimer creation that changed the world um, for good until Iran bombs us. That'll be for bad. That's how that works. Um, this show, it's kind of it's an interesting show because it's a little bit, it's kind of like, it's not super serious. You know, it's got it's pretty ambitious and pretty interesting, and uh, it's even a little bit quirky. And I kind of like this show. I, I have I can't say I've seen all the episodes of it. This is season one. Um, season two is in the fall, but uh, there's something going on here with it, this Manhattan. I agree. I agree. Uh-huh. It's got it's it seems to have some promise. So let's see where they can take it. I don't know how long they can stretch it, but uh, it's got promise. Uh, Mark, uh, I usually let you handle all the music. We're wrapping the show out with uh, some music titles this week, but I'm reserving these because usually we'll get stuff and be like, uh, hey, look, the 50th anniversary reunion concert of Bo Hickey and the Stump Suckers in, you know, Tokyo. And I don't care because I don't know. You have the worst taste in music, Wade. I don't know who Bo Hickey and the Stump Suckers are, and you're the guy. You'd be like, oh, yeah, I saw them in uh, 1985 when they came to the, you know, they they played, they opened for the Mets or something. They opened for the Mets. So, So anyway, but you know what? Here I got three, and I love all of them. Daryl Hall and John Oates live in Dublin. I love Daryl Hall and John Oates. Yeah, but so do I. Fine. <laughs> uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates live in, uh, in Dublin. These guys just, they, they're, they're so good now. They're, it's amazing. They had more hits than anyone else in the 80s. You realize that. More than Duran Duran, more than Human League, more than anybody in the 80s. I mean, they, they own, more than Madonna. They owned the 80s. More than Springsteen. More than Springsteen. You too. More, more than you too. More than Prince. I mean, more than Michael Jackson. They owned the 80s. These guys. It's incredible. And, yeah, and they're, they're so good. They're still Darryl, so good. Daryl Hall has a show called uh, Live from Daryl's House. Yeah, I got a family connection to them that I'll tell you about after uh, the show. Are you name drop again? Uh, no, I'm 
not going to. I'd, I'd get in trouble. But anyway, uh, no, any, everything you expect is here. And they're so good live. They're so good live. It's they're, they're, because somehow there's like an added level here. These guys are so tight. They're better now than they ever have been. And they love performing. And you, obviously you get everything. Rich Girl, You Make My Dreams, uh, Family Man, Man Eater. All the hits are here. Plus stuff that uh, I can't go for that, which was uh, Private Eyes. Private Eyes. Come Gosh, on. I love that song. Uh, but, you know, Sarah Smile, uh, Las Vegas Turnaround. Uh, there's other stuff here. It's uncanny. Some of the lesser-known stuff. It's just great. It's really a lot of fun. A beautiful Blu-ray. Uh, and then we also have uh, still the one, Shania, live from Vegas. You're not a Shania Twain fan, are you? No, I heard she's retiring. She better not. I, no, seriously, I heard she's retiring. I'm you know not what? kidding you. I'll tell you, here's the thing about Shania Twain. She was, she was delicious back in the, the day. Still is. The, whole, the, the package is part of the deal because she's really not that great of a singer. But I remember I would hear a song and I'd be like, that song's not that kind of sucks. That's not, nah. And then they'd come on and go, that was Shania Twain. And, I'd be, and then at that point I'd be like, I love that song. <laughs> I love that song so much. I want to hear it 150 more times. Because suddenly you're not picturing just some schmucky woman singing it. It's Shania Twain and it takes on an added luster. And that's that's the whole that's the whole performance thing, right? You no, because you had a crush on her. You thought she was pretty. Of course, why not? Anyway, twenty six tracks here, uh, and uh, it's great. All all the stuff that you would want and more. And that is Shania, still the one live from Vegas. Uh, really quickly to get through here, we also have a fortieth uh, anniversary DVD documentary plus CD of um, uh, Kansas Miracles Out of Nowhere. Uh, this is great. Lots of interviews, uh, greatest hits, uh, footage, for, live footage from performances. I mean, it's great. And I, you know, uh, this coincides with the 40th anniversary of the debut album uh, from Kansas, who really didn't have as long of a, a career as they should have, because I still think one, they are one of the great prog rock bands of all time. Kansas just. Kansas? Dust in the Wind? God, Dust in the Wind nails it, man. It kills it. Kills it. It's great. I, I feel about them that, like, that I feel about like I feel about Toto. 80 minutes. Oh, the best. <laughs> you have the worst taste in music. You really best. do. So I far, we've learned you love Shania Twain, Kansas, Toto, okay, and Hall and & Oates. So yeah. you're, batting, you're batting 250. Okay. And then on the classic front, on the classical front, uh, we got some stuff from Naxos here by way of some of their labels, uh, or their labels by way of Naxos. This is from Arte. It is uh, Great Ballets from the Bolshoi. This is The Nutcracker, Sleeping Beauty, Giselle, and The Flames of Paris in one four-Blu-ray boxed set. It's a digipack packaging, which I don't particularly care for, but uh, the, the ballets are great. And, uh, you know, I went, to, uh, I went to elementary school with someone who would go on to become a very successful ballerina. Still in touch with her. And, um, you know, she would be proud that I'm covering this on the show. And then also uh, from the Teatro alla Scala, uh, the, by the way of the label Art House Music, is uh, Der Ring des Nibelungen, the uh, gigantic, massive Richard Wagner uh, ring cycle opera. And uh, this is uh, conduct- the orchestra conducted by Daniel Barenboim, who, you know, one of the great conductors of all time. And uh, the stage director is Guy Cassier. You know, the, the if you have the time, it takes about a week and a half to sit through all of this stuff, but it's it's great opera, and it's uh, Wagner at his very best, but it is massive. And these were all staged between 2010 and 2013, so they're all relatively recent, and uh, the, the final installment of this, the Gotodamerung, is really an amazing, amazing bit of staging. So all of the stuff that they do at the Teatro alla Scala in Italy is uh, is first rate. That's all they do. They're just like, they're the, it's, that's where opera comes to life. 
So with that, Mark, we are done. Um, you still haven't seen any celebrities while we, while we were doing this show? No. And by the way, uh, there's no such thing as opera coming to life. That's not possible. Yeah.